what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Game over, man. Game over. What an excellent day for an exorcism. You are invited to an open house where horror will be your host. Don't fall asleep. It's just 13 days until Christmas. 13 days! 13 days! (laughs) Oh no, but when people listen to this, we'll be freaking them out because it will be... Eleven days to Christmas. <laughs> Don't ruin the magic. <laughs> Someone's going to show up two days too late and be like, what? <laughs> Fuck, damn it. Damn that podcast. If you're setting your clocks to Gabin in the Woods. That's how I set my clocks. <laughs> I've set everything to like Gabin in the Woods. So like when it's released, I've, I've attuned it to Christmas, my period, <laughs> um, when to put the bins out, essentially the same thing. Um <laughs> So I, I am basically Doctor Strange in that I control your timeline because I'm the one who presses upload. <laughs> yeah, and stop messing with it. Oh, my God. This, like, extra bonus episode that we threw out, like, last week completely ruins my cycle. <laughs> you thought you were pregnant. Um, that's all I'm going to say. It's like, oh! <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, actually, that's so weird. I've got to admit, I, my whole life... Okay, and this is just something that happens now. My whole life is I've never been able to eat breakfast until later on in the day. Like I love breakfast. Yeah. But I can't I have to be up for a certain amount of time before I can eat food because I wake up every morning feeling sick. Probably oh. it's probably a mixture of just I hate humanity. Um you know, just general, just things make me angry while I'm asleep. I, I didn't finish my medical degree, but I think it's probably less to do with your nihilism than it is for your love of Jim Beam. <laughs> Such a hater. <laughs> um, <laughs> drink a decent whiskey. That's why I drink Jim Beam. Oh, my God. Oh. Anyway, so I always wake up, like I'm always sick in the mornings. Yeah. And the, the good advantage is that I get to go to work and then make my breakfast and eat breakfast at work and yeah. I'm like ha ha give it to the man um and then I go and shit for 45 minutes so ha ha take that capitalism but my entire life because whenever I say like oh you know uh no like why are you having breakfast at like 11 a.m oh because well because I, I feel sick before 11 yeah. my entire life every, every second person is like oh you're not <laughs> pregnant <laughs> It's my entire life. And you're just like, no, I just don't like to eat breakfast at 6 a.m. What the hell? Talk about being conditioned by society. A woman can eat breakfast whenever she goddamn wants, all right? Calm down. Just just look. Next time that happens, just look them square in the eye and just go, pregnant, only until 12 o'clock. By the way, I've got a doctor's appointment. Can I leave? In- yeah, I'll leave to How leave. How long does it take me to get to Mexico? <laughs> Yeah, just don't take me to Texas or Georgia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just until I get over these state lines. <laughs> <laughs> oh, get Lord. into a more liberal state and there's just an abortion booth on the side of the road. <laughs> yeah, just just drive across, boop, to the roundabout, come back. Oh, Lord. Look, just old white men need to stop trying to regulate women's bodies. That's all I'm going to say. Old white men need to stop. Everything. Oh, God. Just, oh, my God. Actually, it was so funny. I once, I got to live, I'm just on a side note, I got to like live one of my dreams when Pussy Riot. Yeah. 
uh, came to Adelaide. For those who don't know, Pussy Riot, <laughs> basically, this is it's it's a group of like badass women. A lot of just you know ordinary like musicians and and mums and yeah. Um, they did a lot of protests against you so know they're Russians, yeah, yeah, yeah. In Russia, they did a lot of protesting against uh, you know Vladimir Putin, um, the system of control. Um, you know they protested for you know LBQ, GTI rights, everything. You know protesting against the state. They were actually imprisoned, yeah, um, and had to fight Vladimir Putin to get released. Anyway, they came to Adelaide. Um, they were here as part of a festival, and while they were here, they were actually. Um, they did a protest um, against how uh, LBQTI members are in Chechnya were being tortured. Yeah. So it was Adelaide's the place for that. Yeah. yeah. Well, no. So it was, it was part of a protest because they were here to draw attention. Yeah. Um. So they just joined this protest. So I got to protest with Pussy Riot. Yeah. Woo! Which is like one of my life goals. That's super cool. Yeah. So I got this picture of like at a riot, and I. Oh my god! I actually had like a, a a sign, you know, which was you know like Chechnya, you know Chechnya, we hear you. One of the girls from Pussy Riot took my poster to hold it in the photos, oh. so I'm like, fuck yeah, I've made it. Anyway, so we did that. We did it on the steps. It was a lot of people, mostly women, and we were just like you know protesting, and it was this really awesome, just organic moment. And you're like, I'm gonna remember this forever. This is this is such a good positive thing of women coming together and they had like elected members of parliament these uh, women who showed up and yeah. they were talking and you're like this is this is really empowering this is fantastic turns out because in adelaide if you're going to protest you've got to like you need a permit you need a permit okay <laughs> yeah. so you got a permit and yeah. you schedule in your time to come and protest on the steps of the government building that's, that's one of our few british hangovers oh you, yeah you need to book you, your book your fucking protest you need to book you need to book your insurrection <laughs> Guess who was booked after us? Turns out somebody had booked in after the uh, Pussy Riot protest. Yeah. So there we were. Everything was like, you know, winding up. It was sort of, it was, I think it was carrying on a bit late because everyone was like, oh my God, this is Pussy Riot. This is, this is amazing. Everyone was just loving the moment. Um, and then 12 old white men <laughs> showed up yeah. with anti-abortion slogans. Did they? And then, like, the crowd of young women just, like, set upon them. It was brilliant. That's beautiful. It was absolutely brilliant, brilliant moment. And it was just – it just shines exactly. Here are all these, like, young, positive women changing the world. We want to make it a, a better place. And here were these crusty old fucks <laughs> living in the dark ages trying to tell us what to do with our bodies. Yeah. And we were just like, suck our titties. <laughs> so you've had feminist crochet slipknot. Yes. Turn up with their <laughs> with their bandanas. Yes. Followed by Eric Clapton. Yeah, basically. <laughs> oh my god. It was just it was just such a juxtaposition. So are, are they the same three women all over the world or is it kind of like MF Doom where they just sort of set up franchises and you don't know if you're getting the real one or not? Well, see that was that was part of the thing of what they did in Russia was they actually had multiple members like they had yeah. dozens of members and part of the reason that they wore the balaclavas um obviously when you're in a highly deadly sort of state well, shall we say very few people realize that when you become a protester in mm. russia you're also auditioning to become a magician and disappear, disappear. uh so they actually had like a lot of members and like i said because a lot of them were like you know ordinary women who had you know children and were worried that they'd have their children removed from them which had 
been before. They're like, oh, yeah. you're an you're, you're an instigator. You're a terrible person. They'd have their kids removed. So multiple members and they wore the balaclavas, I guess, as well, that it was a sign, you know, that we are Pussy Riot, but also to disguise. Yeah. But th- they did have, like, sort of the, the core members and then others who could interchange. So Because, yeah, that's the beauty of Russia. I mean, there's a whole episode just in the Russian government where yeah. you've basically got the old KGB just transitioned straight into oligarch powers. Yeah. Yeah. And the place is still completely fucked. Yeah, I know. But ah, oh, I did have that weird sex dream about Vladimir Putin. But that's, that's a side weird. that's a that's another side story. That's not weird. He's fit. You know. He's oh into judo. He can ride a horse. Have you seen the calendars of him? He's quite fit for a politician. Yeah. And not that Obama, like, I can shoot three pointers mm. while still droning a school yeah. fit. He's yeah, yeah, he's out and about. Yeah. Like he's <laughs> He's like Russian Joe Rogan. <laughs> Oh no! Don't don't sully Putin's name by comparing him to Rogan. <laughs> the weird thing is, I actually quite like Rogan, <laughs> even though he's even though he's like a right wing apologist. You know, he would shoot you on sight. I'm just nah, saying, he, would, he wouldn't shoot me. He'd fucking personally break me. <laughs> he wouldn't do it from a distance. See, that's what I'm worried about. Yeah. You shouldn't be encouraging that. Oh my god! No, I love I love Putin. I love his calendar. I think it is the he. It is me. I am a man. I am a manly man, and here is me. Looking at a tree Pretty with my shirt mammal. off, yeah, in camouflage off. pants, because oh, I am a man, and that's what men do. Love him. Yeah. Well, I don't love him. Like his politics are shit, and it's just done terrible, terrible things to the people of Russia. But I think he would give you some really dirty Christian grey, Fifty Shades of Grey, kinky sex that would that would just be pretty oh, darn good. There's no way, being a Russian oligarch, you're not. Pretty fucking bent. Yeah. Like, ah, yeah. oh, you know, he, he's the advantage, I guess, of being so well versed in torture is you know <laughs> the pleasure and pain receptors. So I'm like, ah, oh, he knows what spot to, he knows where to. That would really ruin your day as like a Bond villain torture <laughs> artist where you're like tweaking someone's nipples and suddenly they get an awkward <laughs> and erection. Suddenly, like, ooh. <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, hello. <laughs> Go home just feeling like you failed. <laughs> They don't normally come. (laughs) What was I doing wrong? I followed Dr. Mengele's (laughs) book to the letter. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. That would have made the ending of, like, Casino Royale very different with just General Craig tied (laughs) naked to that chair. Oh, my God. Why are you holding your breath? (laughs) I have to. It's the only way I can. (laughs) I'm just going to think about the Queen for a minute. Have you got a belt? No, 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 no. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! You'll just—you'll never break me. Wink. Oh, and then you accidentally let the name of another torturer out. Yeah. Oh no! <laughs> the worst. Oh, Blofeld. I mean, <laughs> Mister Lefty Eye. Whatever your time. Completely forgot all the Bond villains there for a minute because they're, they're forgettable. Yeah, you only remember the the Bond heroes. I basically remember the, like the one thing I remember from like pre Daniel Craig Bond. Yeah, is Sean Connery on a table about to get lasered in the dick. Yeah, that's a classic moment though. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's just such a like dick laser. Yeah, <laughs> dick first. Oh wait, come on, like pussy galore. Yeah, octopusy. Come on, I love that stuff. Yeah. I love it. And you know what? I Because people go, how can you be like a James Bond fan and a feminist? Okay. Because I know they it, it, it may seem like – but, you, I mean, you look at it. I, 
actually, especially some of like the older ones, they were very progressive yeah. in terms of the evil companies. Because you had look with like Spectre. Yeah. A lot of like there were women so like, you, who were in positions like very high ranking positions, you know, of power. Well, you know, on the good side, you were just like you were always a uh, you know typing. Yeah. If you're if you're a Bond like bad lady, yeah. you could like run a company. You were flying planes. You were fl- you know captaining boats. You know you were yeah. kicking ass, taking names. So I think the bad Bond villain really led the way. Yeah. So the problem is he was going after girl bosses. <laughs> That's why he's not a feminist. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the next one where Alexandria Ocasio Cortez mm. is in the next one. That'll be good. Oh, you know, to me, you're never going to go. Nancy past- Pelosi should be in one, just as a straight villain. <laughs> <laughs> As she feebly tries to tear, <laughs> just tears uh, documents. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, they call me the shredder. Yeah. <laughs> mm. You're really shredding working class values with your fucking. Ooh. Oh, sorry. No, no you didn't. No, no you didn't. Why don't you just angrily tweet about it? No, I'm playing to our fucking listeners in Georgia. <laughs> And fucking Louisiana. Yeah, all right. Well, if somebody like bursts into the room and, you know, basically just storms your house and then, you know, just trashes everything, shit, you know, wipes shit on the walls and like jacks off into your like desk, (laughs) this is your own fault. It's your own fault. That's all I'm going to say. That's what I get for living in the Pizzagate pizza shop. (laughs) Why have we got onto this weird tangent? I don't know. I was going to talk about the Australian Oscars. But fuck the, it. Yeah, no, fuck them. No and don't call it the Australian Oscars. They're trying to make that like, catch on. It's not catching on. You know what would know make the Australian film industry catch on? What? Films that are worth fucking watching. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> That'd be a good one. Oh, it's become Drop a su- microphone. <laughs> it's become a super spreader event. The only time they've ever reached a large audience. Oh, my God. If only they made zombie films in Australia, they might know how to deal with a fucking outbreak. But yeah. no. Oh! No, Justin Kurtzell is making yet another depressing fucking recollection of an Australian murder. Good work, mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <sighs> anyway. Yeah. So our film industry sucks, is what you're saying? Sucks balls. Yeah. And not in a good way. Yeah. Oh, like, you know, I'd watch it if it was doing that. Like a torture artist who's trying to figure out their craft. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Does this hurt or is it fun? I don't know. I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to get government funding to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Could, could you maybe, you know, put in some, like, you know, uh, interest for, you know, people who have alternative interests? Could we maybe get some macrame in here? <laughs> Can we? They will make a movie about macrame. <laughs> I guarantee you, yeah. and it will star Magda Jabansky and fucking the dude from Kenny, and they'll have a dog that talks. Oh, there's got to be a dog that talks. And it's going to be part funded by a barbecue chain, <laughs> and there's going to be fucking- They can't use David Gulp a little anymore. Oh, uh, yeah. Rest in peace. Yeah, the only decent actor in this country. Fuck, yeah. he's gone. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's not true. There's lots of great actors. There's yeah. just lots of shit filmmakers. Yeah. Well, no, there's lots of great, uh, like, Australian actors. They're just, there's nothing good in Australia to make. No. Yeah, they've gone to, like, LA. Yeah. I like Richard Roxburgh. I like Richard Roxburgh, too. I think he's such a good actor. It's just such a shame that we just, like, he keeps giving a lot of shit to star in. I've got to say it. I will not have a bad word against Van Helsing. (laughs) That was a fucking great film. Of course you went to fucking Van Helsing. (laughs) Oh, my God. (sighs) Oh. Yeah. There we go. You know what? Speaking of films that are que- have questionable backgrounds. But but are good to watch? 
This brings us to this week's subject matter. Okay. <laughs> uh, look, after the depressing reality that was the last couple of weeks, you know, with nuclear, you know, atomic plants, we thought this week we would embark on a different world of horror. Our horror-fueled whimsy. As we open the door to Halloween Town this Christmas, as we explore the world of the nightmare before Christmas. This is it's Halloween. Halloween. This is Halloween. <laughs> Halloween. Don't sue us, Disney. <sighs> <sighs> yeah, we're going to have to be careful this episode. If anyone is going to break us down with litigation, it'll be Disney. I don't reckon it's the four people in Texas that are listening to us. <laughs> oh, like Disney, are like they will litigate. Oh, yeah. They will. Lit- Do you remember there was a, in store, there was a fish and chip shop? And they called them, like this tiny little fish and chip shop in the middle of nowhere, in this shitty suburb, middle of nowhere, they called their fish and chip shop Frying Nemo. Right. Within a minute, Disney had litigators to serve them and were like, either you need to give us like $20 million or stop this immediately. Okay. Yeah. Like, And you're like, how the fuck did they know? Like, don't worry if the CIA is listening. Fuck them. You need to worry if Disney is listening. Yeah. Disney will litigate. <laughs> they probably own Podbean. We're fucked. Yeah, we're so fucked. Oh, Lord. So we're looking at the world of the nightmare before Christmas and the whole kicking temper tantrum that almost ruined it all. Oh, I can already guess who this was. And why you shouldn't call it Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. In this week's episode, yeah, I'm saying it. Okay. I'm saying it. I can I can hear goths hissing at me. I- <laughs> <laughs> but not too much because they don't want to ruin their lip gloss, <laughs> their black lip gloss. Like, I'm a fan of Tim Burton. I am a yeah. fan of Tim Burton. I love what he does. But I'm just going to say it. I don't think it should be called Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Okay. Yeah. In this week's episode of Two Goth Kids Get a Dog. <laughs> Or The Nightmare Before Disney. Uh Now, Tim Burton was born in 1958 in Burbank, California. His mother, oh my God, I don't even care about the rest of the story. This is the greatest part of the story that you're going to hear now. This is my personal life goal. And it makes everything make sense about Tim Burton. Okay. His mother owned a cat-themed gift shop. (laughs) fair enough that is my life goal i honestly dream of quitting my job and doing that every day burbank california in the late 50s early 60s there would have been some interesting people there from movie world and cat themed gift shop right in the middle of it all because that's where the satanists were as well it just it makes everything about tim burton make sense yeah um and frankly who cares what his dad did knowing what his mum does um something about his dad was a former minor league baseball player who then went to work at the parks and recreation department whatever no one cares no exposition for him yeah (laughs) burton was never a particularly good student but okay this is the weird thing that tripped me out he played a sport tim burton played a sport i I can't picture tim burton playing a, a sport ever Okay, let alone a game. But no, he regularly played in a team. Can you guess what the sport was? <sighs> Never get it. Uh, okay, I'm going to have three guesses. Okay. Okay, so this is going to be California. Yes. So we're going to rule out ice skating straight away. Okay. All right, I'll give you a clue. Uh, tell me that 
<laughs> Tell me that you've got white privilege. Polo. Without... <laughs> so close. Water polo. <laughs> water polo. Who the fuck? Whose school offers water polo? Wow. Like, but it's Burbank, California, the children of movie makers. <laughs> yeah, water polo. Yeah. Oh, my fucking God. Water polo. Oh, my God. We, like, had to share the hockey stick to, like, push, like, the tennis ball around on the dirt. Like, fucking water polo. Anyway. We had dodged the snake. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, Lord. He later attended Cal Arts where, for his final project, he made a short film called Stalk of the Celery Monster. (laughs) Stalk of the Celery Monster. Yes. This film actually caught the eye of the Disney studio and they offered Burton an animator's apprenticeship. Oh, cool. How cool is that? That's very cool. Except it was Disney. (laughs) And there he worked as an animator, storyboard artist, graphic designer, and concept artist, okay, for films such as The Black Cauldron, The Fox and the Hound, and Tron. He worked on Tron. However, none of his concept art ever made it into any of the films as it was always considered too dark. (laughs) Basically, his dark aesthetic was just not on point with the Disney brand of the time. Yeah, fair enough. In 1982, Burton made his first short film for Disney. It's a a six-minute black and white film that centers around a boy fascinated by Vincent Price, with Vincent Price himself providing narration. Cool. Because Burton loved Vincent Price. He was like my Bruce Campbell. And Vincent Price seems like a pretty good stick. Yeah. Oh, he, yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, So, yeah, it would be me making a six-minute film and just getting (laughs) Bruce Campbell in. Oh, my God. Oh, next, Burton produced another short film, a li- the live-action Frankenweenie, which is about a child that tries to Frankenstein resurrect his dog after it is killed by a car, which so was ready to basically hand out all kinds of emotional trauma to kids <laughs> and adults all over the globe. <laughs> it was after this Disney fired Burton. Okay. Uh, basically making films too start, like dark and scary for children. Yeah. So just get the hell out of here. One person, however, in, uh, in California liked the Burton aesthetic. Can you guess who it was? Uh, I'm guessing it might have been John Waters. It's Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens? Creator of the character Pee Wee Herman. There you go. Who knew? This is before the movie incident. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And Pee Wee Herman recruited Burton to direct Pee Wee's Big Adventure, where he's bringing the children's character to the big screen. I had no idea. Wow. (laughs) Now, it was during this that Burton was a crazy obsessed fan of a new wave band called Oingo Boingo. No shit. Okay. Yeah. I, obviously, I was about to ask, have you heard of Oingo yeah, of Boingo? Course, yeah. um, okay. So, basically, for those who don't know who Oingo Boingo is, um, they did the title song to the movie Weird Science 
Weird science. No, no, no. I had no idea. Like, I've got Oingo Boingo on all my Halloween tracks. Like, I love weird science and Dead Man's Party. Anyway, they had appeared in a couple of films. Um, excuse me. So Burton called Oingo Boingo's manager to see if the lead singer would meet with them in regards to doing some mu- music for Pee Wee's big movie. <laughs> the lead singer of this band, or Oingo Boingo, creating yeah. this weird science, was a man called Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman was in Oingo Boingo. Danny Elfman is the lead singer of Oingo Boingo. Fucking hell. Weird science. <laughs> I know, you are going to go back right now and you are going to get on YouTube and you are going to watch back every Oingo Boingo. That's Danny Elfman. Wow. That creator of the Simpsons tune and pretty much it, like some of the most iconic music, yeah. yeah. But that's that, that's something about those eighties bands, because like, Devo had Mark Mothersbaugh and mm. those guys who like did Rugrats and yeah, tons of film scores and different things like that. Yeah, no, Danny Elfman was the lead singer of Oingo Boingo. Now, <laughs> Elfman had no idea who Burton was, and only agreed to the meeting. Because he was a fan of Pee Wee Herman. Yes. <laughs> Only reason he went to the meeting. That's amazing. So basically he went to the meeting. They had a chat. Um, Burton uh, Elfman went home and recorded a bit of music onto a cassette, sent them an audio cassette back in the day is what they did. Yeah. You know, um, and thought, okay, I'm never going to hear anything from them again. They get a phone call. Well, Elfman's manager gets a phone call saying that they want Danny Elfman to do the score for Pee Wee's Big Adventure. This is the funny thing. Danny Elfman was like, no, I can't do that. Like, I, I don't know how to write a musical score for, like, a, a movie. Like, fuck off. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I can't do this. Like, it's going to be a disaster. His manager, however, <laughs> was like, Get fucked. I'm not making that phone call. I have spent the last two weeks like doing this contract. It's a huge payday. If you want to tell them that you're not going to do it, you have to phone them and tell them you're not doing it. Yeah. Elfman couldn't bring himself to make the phone call. He was like, oh, it's just going to be too awkward. Yeah. I, I can't do this. So basically did the score because he was too shy to say he didn't want to do it. How very unlike a manager to gaslight their talent into doing work they don't want to do. So Danny Elfman and Tim Burton began one of the longest running bromances in Hollywood. There you go. Oh, the film had a budget of $8 million and grossed $40 million in the US. Not it's bad. Not anytime Pee Wee Herman's grossed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not bad for a child's movie. Yeah. yeah. Burton's next big project was to direct Beetlejuice, which was a huge success. Uh, budget of $15 million, grossed over $80 million in the US and won an Academy Award for Best Makeup. Yeah. Studio execs then decided to take a gamble and hired Burton to direct the new Batman movie. The first thing Burton did was to cast Michael Peaton from 
Beetlejuice. Did you say Michael Peaton, as in Michael P. Keaton from Family Ties? No. It's my <laughs> tooth. Leave me alone. <laughs> Michael Keaton from Beetlejuice, which caused a major, major backlash from the studio, Batman fans, nerds, and pretty much everyone except Michael Keaton's manager. I don't know why anyone would want to work on a canonical like cartoon film. Oh, I get Why it. Would, I, I get it, but the fucking hurt you're opening yourself up to. Oh, but come on. It's that ultimate, like, everybody, like, yeah. wants to, like, swing a cape and be like, I'm Batman. Yeah, but, I mean, imagine how bad, like, someone like um, Andrew Garfield's life is now. Having <laughs> having been the Batman, the Spider-Man that, for some reason, so many people hate. Yeah, but you know what? It, I, I don't even care. Yeah. I wouldn't even care. I would just sit back just watching my own VHS copy all the time. Well, I just, you can uh, just do that yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Put your own mixtape over the back of it. You don't need Danny Elfman. Oh, my God. No, 100%. Like, it's like someone who's like, do you want to be Wonder Woman? Fuck yeah, I want to be Wonder Woman. I said canonical. <sighs> Whatever. <laughs> You're such a hater. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, basically everyone except Michael Keaton... Uh, Keaton's manager was on board. Yeah, that was the rest of the world when they found out that Michael Keaton <laughs> was dropping Batman. my phone. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, you know what? <laughs> Still a better choice than Affleck. But anyway, yeah, that was very strange. That was fucking just. That was wrong. Yeah. Um. So much so that the share price of Warner Brothers slumped. It the studio's share price slumped. When they found out about Michael Keaton, talk about ruining your boner. You'd be like, I'm Batman. Oh. <laughs> That's the sound of shares dropping. Ooh. Then again, if I could get an erection and like stockbrokers would jump to their debts, I'd walk around oh, just like a pew, miscreant. Pew, pew, pew. Just me in a trench coat. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Ending late stage capitalism. I just walk through Wall Street. Oh. I'd, no. They'd fucking pray for a jet to crash into their <gasps> fucking buildings. You know what? I would go and show up to ring that bell with my home boner. <laughs> Bing. Ah, <laughs> oh, they all dropped dead. Ah, <laughs> oh, so basically everyone was expecting this to be a failure. Everyone. Yeah. Just on a side note, okay, just as a bit of trivia, okay. Yeah. So we cause one of the the pinnacle moments of the the first Burton's Batman yes. is of course Jack Nicholson as the oh, Joker. Yeah. Oh my god. Like uh, uh, supreme performance, okay? Do you know who was Burton's second choice if they failed to reach an agreement with Nicholson? Oh, fuck. See, I reckon Jack Palance would have done it, but he was already in it. Yeah, he was already in it. Was this close, that close to being the Joker? Please tell me it was someone like Nick Nolte. I won't leave you in anticipation no. any longer. No, they fucking... Tim Curry. Oh, Tim Curry. Tim Curry. I thought you were going with the whole, um, oh God, I can never remember his name. He, he talks like communion. Oh, Christopher Walken. Walken. No, I'm trying to do the bit. Like, anticipation, but maybe the rain. Yeah, see, there's two kinds of Tim Curry fans. There's Rocky Horror Tim Curry fans and there's Stephen King's It. Tim Curry fans. Oh, I'm a Stephen King's it Tim Curry fan. Oh, no, see, I'm a Stephen King anything. I'm uh, Stephen King. I'm a, Steve, I'm a Tim Curry fan anything. Yeah. He just gave me very weird boners as a child. <laughs> they would have been weird. <laughs> oh. Anyway, so the, the Batman was released and you're also going to go away now and next time you watch Batman, you're going to picture Tim Curry. Um, 
as the Joker. This, this, the the Tim Burton Batman was the first film I remember seeing in the cinema. Yeah, really? Yeah, because I'd, I'd come down to visit my sister who was – she's 10 years older than me. Yeah. And she took me to the movies. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, still got the cup. Okay, I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was released in 1989 and at the time it had the biggest marketing and merchandising promotion of all time. Wow. They threw so much money at this thing. And then at the time it grossed an unadjusted $250 million in the US – and $400 million worldwide. Which, Unadjusted. So I think now basically it would be about $530 million in the US and $850 million worldwide. So that's still top 20. Yeah. yeah. Like, whoo. It also won an Academy Award for Best Art Direction. Then came Edward Scissorhands. Yes. Uh, co-written with Caroline Thompson. And again, scored by Danny Elfman. At one stage on set during production, Johnny Depp approached Caroline and asked her what she felt Edward was feeling during the scene, asking for guidance. Yeah. When Burton discovered this, he threw a tantrum and kicked a hole in the wall and yelled at his co-writer for apparently undermining him. Cool and normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Someone's got fucking... Edward fucking misogyny boots. <laughs> yeah. She's the fucking co-writer. Yeah. Who else would you ask? Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Now, during this time, Tim Burton had the notion that he would like to just explore an earlier project that he'd never got off its feet. Frank and Weenie? Burton, uh, you're obsessed with the weenie. <laughs> Burton as a child had been a fan of holiday Christmas specials, would you believe? Like Rudolph the Red Rose, the Red Nosed Reindeer. And the Grinch that stole Christmas. And whilst at Disney, he wrote a poem called The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. About a creature called Jack Skellington, who was in charge of Halloween Town. Dissatisfied with life, Jack's by accident discovers Christmas Town and decides he wants to run Christmas. So he kidnaps Santa Claus and delivers his own Fright Night. At the time, Burton pitched it to Disney as a 30-minute Christmas special to be narrated by Vincent Price. Concept art was created by Burton, art director Rich Heinrichs, as well as Disney animator Henry Selleck. But this was a studio producing The Little Mermaid. They had (laughs) no interest in this project whatsoever. Whereas 1960s Disney might have. Yeah. Because they were making – they remember Sleepy Hollow that they did? I could, the, the Headless Horseman? That was fucking scary. Yeah. I'm a, I remember as it, – you know, it's so weird. You know, you, you know, sometimes you see – I can't even remember like what happens, but I remember as a kid I saw Disney's Something Evil This Way Comes. Yeah. Scared the shit out of me. Like I didn't want to get out of bed in the middle of the night because of that film. Yeah. So it's kind of like you created a lot of like emotional drama, Disney. Yeah. Over the oh my god, don't even get me started about the Lion King. Yeah, I still have emotional damage from when Mufasa. Di- oh my god. <gasps> He's like, come on, Dad. Come on, Dad. Oh, my God. He's getting under his little paw. It's brutal, isn't it? <gasps> brutal. Oh, <sighs> Tim 
Disney. <laughs> now they just make Star Wars that oh. doesn't give you any emotional connection at all. Oh, my Lord. Except for The Mandalorian. That was excellent. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The Mandalorian. Oh, yeah, the child. Anyway. It would never not be Baby Yoda. I don't care what exactly, they say. Yeah. They can call him Frankie Weenie the third. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, Baby Yoda. Yeah, yeah lordy do it. <laughs> so, but now a decade later, Burton wanted to make this into a film. But Disney owned the rights as it was created when Burton was in their employ. So, but Disney had enough business sense to know that when one of the world's currently highest bankable directors wants to create a film using something that sits stuffed away in your attic like a broken toy, then you hand over the toy. Yeah. But Disney still felt that The Nightmare Before Christmas was too dark for the Disney brand, so it was handed handled on to the Touchstone Pictures label. Um, Touchstone was owned and franchised uh, and funded by Disney, but it produced more mature content and was aimed towards adults. Basically everything that wasn't, you know, wholesome enough to have Disney slapped on it. Oh, you knew when you took that Betamax home and it had the... (laughs) Yeah, 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 this is going to be good. Yeah, woohoo! This is Touchstone. Three men and a baby. Woo! We're going to see some boobies. (laughs) But Burton was riding high. 88 was Beetlejuice, 89 Batman, 30, uh, 90 Edward Scissorhands. And the next two years was to be consumed by a Batman sequel. Burton didn't want to direct the film and get bogged down and spending what would ultimately be three years of production shooting a stop motion film. Yeah. So the studio hired Disney animator Henry Selick, who was part of the original creation designers as the film's director. Right. And this is one of the main reasons where I have a problem with it being called Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Because I think it really takes a lot away from everyone else who was involved. And Henry Selick, you know, who was the producer of this film. Three years. It's a long time. Three years to produce this. And it, a lot of what happened on the screen is because of Henry Selick. Yeah. You know, so I think he just gets really shafted when they say it's Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. So, yeah, so Henry Selick was part of the original team and Tim Burton would be producer along with Denise DeNovi, who would again go on to produced countless number of films with Burton. So the original poem by Burton had essentially three characters to it. Jack Skellington, Zero the Dog, and Father Christmas, and a throwaway line that mentioned creatures that threw Santa in a sack. Yeah. Obviously the story would need to be fleshed out. So do you remember Caroline who co-wrote Edward Scissorhands with Burton? Yeah, the one whose fault it is that the walls are so flimsy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she seemed like the obvious choice to, you know, flesh out the, you know, the gothic poem. Yeah. But do you remember the argument that they had on set? No. The one I told you about where, you know, Burton, oh, yeah, you yeah. know, asked for direction. Well, it seems Burton did remember that argument. Oh, God. And Caroline was shocked to find out she did not receive the call to write The Nightmare Before Christmas. This hit her doubly hard as her then-partner, Danny Elfman, was called in on the project. Oh, no. Caroline would later say in an interview, 
I was really pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> I was really pissed off I wasn't invited to join the, the project because I'd just done Edward with Tim. But Tim's a funny person. <laughs> Michael McDowell, who had written the original Beetlejuice script, was given the job, uh, Carolyn Thompson reflects, quote, when it was time to turn in the script, Michael McDowell, who had a serious drug problem, I guess snorted his salary and didn't write, and he delivered nothing usable. <laughs> he just took... <laughs> you don't get that kind of candor in modern interviews, do you? Oh, you really don't. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> she goes on to say, he just took Danny, Danny Elfman's lyrics and refor- <laughs> reformatted them as a screenplay... And that's all he turned in. Uh, that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, production had started. Oh, great. The simple truth was stop motion was such a slow process, Selick and his crew needed to start shooting as quickly as possible. Yeah. They were shooting at a speed of 24 to 1, so 24 shots for every second of film. 24 frames a second, the Ooh. cinema industry standard. Danny Elfman had little more than a poem and a few conversations to go by, but essentially had started working on songs. Yeah. Ironically, most of the songs would be completed before the script was. Okay. So filming on the production, uh, because, yeah, basically he sort of had an idea of what the poem would be. He knew that there were going to be some creatures that were going to kidnap Santa Claus. So Danny Elfman just went away and wrote a song about kidnapping Santa Claus. <laughs> oh. This is real soup from a stone, like soup from a stone stuff, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You can tell we're both tired. We're both stammering. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, yeah, most songs got done before the script was. Filming on the production began in San Francisco in 1991. Henry Selick explains, we had three songs by Danny Elfman, but no real screenplay. And we had to start because we had a pretty tight budget and had to finish this movie on time. So we started off with the song, What's this? What's this? There's music all about. That's the... Yeah. Yeah. I can't help. I love some of the songs from The Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, I've noticed you do love Eurovision. Yes. <laughs> Nothing. That's not a criticism at all. (laughs) Basically, Elfman's song sort of inadvertently created the storyline and script. Jesus Christ. Uh, Danny Elfman would also be later named as an associate producer of the film. Danny Elfman does a lot for this film. Yeah. The head of the studio now approached Caroline after some pleading – uh, from Elfman, and Caroline Thompson was brought onto the production to finally create a workable script. The director, Selick, credits Thompson with stitching the songs together and creating a functioning script. But Caroline had an unusual task in front of her. In her words, it was like building a house that people were already living in. As they were already filming the Kidnap the Santa Claus song as Caroline came on board. Wow. Yeah. So basically, yeah, you could just story to piece all these songs that already exist and are being filmed. There, there is an entire study in the number of women that have saved Hollywood films like this. Oh, yeah. 
Well, Caroline fleshed out Sully's character and also had her look somewhat redesigned. Originally, Sally was a much more curvy and curvaceous creature, more like a deceased Jessica Rabbit. Oh, hello. <laughs> so, with little to no motivation other than getting with Jack. So, Caroline had her redesigned more plain and infused her with her own drives and motivations, such as rebellion against Dr. Finkelstein and finding her own independence. And she did this and had the script ready to go in a week. Jesus Christ. She did this in the same week that she was on holidays with Elfman at a seaside resort. Wow. <laughs> That's one hell of a retreat. Uh, uh, Caroline says, it sounds really impressive, but it isn't because – in those days, an animated film was about 75 minutes and Danny had written all the songs, so it was like writing about 45 pages. And things finally ran smoothly. <sighs> kind of. Okay, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so cameras were rolling, the script was now written, and even voice work on the, on the dialogue was being completed. But the production ran into another snag. All of Jack Skellington's songs had been recorded, being sung by Danny Elfman himself, and then Danny Elfman recorded the speaking dialogue of Jack as well. The only problem was the director, Henry Selick, was not thrilled by the vocal acting Ah. by Elfman in his speaking roles. Okay, that's fair. And took it to Burton and Denise for permission to recast. Henry and Tim decided on Chris Sarandon, um, who people may know as the sexy vampire from Fright Night. Oh. Or more commonly known as Lord Humperdinck from The Princess Bride. (laughs) Yep. Um, Who not only could act, but also sounded like Elfman as well. On a side note, I didn't realise Chris Sarandon and Susan Sarandon married. Oh, there you go. I never knew that. Um, I mean, not now, but in the past. And they were in the past? Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> although apparently from one source, Burton was supposed to tell Elfman himself to lessen the blow. Ooh. But instead, Burton left that to an intern to inform Elfman he was out and Saradin was in. Oh, that's brutal. <laughs> It was suggested that this, plus arguments over the Batman Returns soundtrack, caused the massive fallout between Elfman and Burton. The next film after The Nightmare Before Christmas was Ed Wood, and this was to be the first Tim Burton feature film that was not scored by Danny Elfman. Some say it was because Elfman declined Burton's invitation after the firing on Nightmare. Others suggested that Burton did not offer Elfman a job on Edward after their arguments. So basically there's only about three Burton films that haven't been scored by Danny Elfman. Um, I think it's The Barber of Fleet Street. Sweeney Todd. Yes, Sweeney Todd. Um, The new one about somebody's children. And Edward. Yes. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) But Elfman can still be heard in the movie. Obviously, he sings Jack's songs, but he also plays the role of the clown with the tearaway face. (laughs) 
As well as Barrel, one of Oogie Boogie's miniature henchmen. <laughs> one of those henchmen is also Pee Wee Herman. No way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is also a miniature version of Helfman's head, which can be seen inside a uh, the double bass played by the street band. Wow. But this wasn't the only last-minute voice change. Originally, Burton's hero, Vincent Price, was brought in and recorded the voice of Santa Claus and to read part of Burton's poem for the beginning and ending of the film. But Vincent had been struggling with bad health after after the death of his third wife after 18 years together. And on listening to the audio, it was decided that Vincent sounded too frail and much too sad to be Santa Claus. Oh, fuck. So how did they tell him? They just got some fucking cock. <laughs> like an intern. Yeah, they were like, how, how, how long is he expected to live? Should we maybe just not make the call? Or should we just leave it a mystery? Yeah, I'd be like, yeah, you were great, Vincent. Nobody tell him. Nobody let him watch it. <laughs> Patrick Stewart's uh, Star Trek Jean-Luc Picard was almost Santa Claus as well. Patrick Stewart read part of the Burton poem, again, originally to be read at the beginning and opening of the films, but alas, it never came to fruition. Um, I can't seem to find like a definite, you know, explanation for what happened. But in the end, a modified opening is read by the eventual person playing Sandy Claus, Ed Ivory, who was a relative unknown. Maybe they just ran out of money. Yeah, sounds like it. But the drama would continue. Carolyn Thompson would find herself in the middle of another storm with Burton. It began with Carolyn telling Burton that she wanted to alter the script, explaining that she felt Jack and Sally's relationship needed another couple of beats uh, to feel more like a deserved romance rather than a tacked-on love interest. She also wanted to change the ending so that we would discover... Inside Oogie Boogie was Dr. Finkelstein all along. Carolyn says Burton did not take the idea of this new ending well. (laughs) Carolyn says, quote, He just basically turned around and started screaming in an attacking and editing machine. (laughs) They made Tim look like a 10-pound weakling. These things are huge metal machines. You can't move off the floor. Tim was there ramming it, screaming at me. I was, okay. I mean, people have their ways of dealing with stress, and this was his, and that's fine. (laughs) This is why she didn't work for Louis (laughs) C.K. But I never got a chance to take another crack at it. I didn't get the impression that if I arrived with more pages, they would even be read, let alone welcomed. Yikes. Sadly, Tim and I are not in touch. Carolyn says, we've had what I would call our 13th breakup. I hope he regrets it. (laughs) I loved reading all of her interviews. Oh, like you said, a candor you just don't get these days. Uh, Now, at the height of production, the film was a crew of over 120 spread over 20 sound stages. Jesus. In total, uh, 109,440 frames were taken for the film. Using 227 puppets, 
Jack Skeleton had around 400 heads to express his different emotions in different stages. Fuck, imagine losing one. Oh, my, you mean <laughs> that guy? Just like, oh, my God. The happy to sad. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Although he would transition from happy to sad like Tim Burton <laughs> if he had the intervening ones missing. <laughs> there is nothing in between. Just like, I'm happy. Fuck you, editing machine. Lock up your drywall. Lock up, <laughs> up your, your drywall. <laughs> Here come his boots. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but the studio decided they wanted to maximise their potential for earnings for the film. So they began marketing it as Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, of course they did. Uh, I don't, th- this, is, this is not against Tim Burton. Like, we can never discount Tim Burton's contributions to the creation of this film. Um, but saying it is Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas does a horrible disservice to all those involved. Yeah. Not the least of which is Henry Selleck, who gave up three years of his life to direct this film. Yeah. In a later interview, Selleck reflected, It's as though he, Burton, laid the egg and I just sat on it and hatched it. He wasn't involved in a hands-on way, but his hand is in it. It was my job to make it look like a Tim Burton film, which is not so different from my own films. Asked about Burton's production involvement, Selleck claimed, I don't want to take away from Tim, but he was not in San Francisco when we made it. He came up five times over two years and spent no more than eight or ten days in total on the production. But considering Burton was filming and then post-working Batman Returns and completing pre-production on Edward, it's a miracle he found eight to ten days to show up. Yeah. It's like when Tarantino first hit big, everything that he had his hand remotely near oh, yeah. became like, a this is this has been touched by Tarantino. Like uh, Killing Zoe, that film that came out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, fucking nothing to do with that. Yeah. Like, he knew the guy, yeah. you know, so it was like, oh, Tarantino, yeah. heavily inspired, yeah. Yeah, and you're like, nah, he knew the dude. Yeah, he knew the dude. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. It's, yeah, it was like if you walked past, you know, Tarantino in the supermarket, Quinton, in, waft of Tarantino wafted onto me. Homeopathic Tarantino. <laughs> I can't believe it's not Tarantino. That 40% less feet. Yeah, mm, uh, yeah, that's how you know it's not a Tarantino film. <laughs> yeah. Women are safe and there's no feet. <laughs> Now, that was Weinstein. That was Weinstein. Now, when asked about the whole Tim Burton's nightmare thing, Burton explained that it turns more into a brand name thing. It turned into something else, which I'm not quite sure about. Is that how he speaks? That's how I just assume. Yeah. I'm trying to be as gothy as possible. <laughs> like, very vampire of the night. Don't speak too loudly. I might wake the dead. Yeah. Oh, don't want to wake by the, the dead, bats. By the dead, I mean Helena Bonham Carter. <laughs> oh, but do, you, do you think this is how Tim Burton talks? I would imagine it is. This is uh, how dare you add emotions to my character? Oh my god, I shall thrash you and, your, <laughs> and the sound machine you wrote in on. I will not stand for this folly. Oh, oh, oh. That's him slapping the editing machine. Oh, oh, take that, you scoundrel. (laughs) Zero to Scarlet Pimpernel in (laughs) no time. (laughs) Oh, 
Oh, that being said, I love Tim Burton films. So yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, he just he just he just talks like a very gentle vampire. <laughs> I, I want to suck your blood. Would that be okay? <laughs> could we maybe just could you put a little bit of eyeliner on while I do it? The film premiered in New York in October of 1993 and made an okay $50 million at the box office. Jeez, that's all right. um, In the US. However, it would then go on to become a giant cult classic on home video sales, which is really where it sort of found its audience. Yeah. Walt Disney reissued the film to cinemas in 2006 – and made another lazy $15.8 million in the US. Disney then reissued it again in 2007, 2008, 2009, and 2020, bringing its box office gross total to $91.5 million in the US. Not bad. (laughs) Because The Nightmare Before Christmas has gone on to become one of the biggest marketing money makers for Disney. <laughs> As anyone who's ever been to in any shop, there is like Jack's, oh my God, especially in Halloween. Yeah. Because you can market it in Halloween and Christmas and Valentine's Day. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's not a holiday that they can't slam. Ah, oh, because they just know their audience. I've never met a woman that wasn't filled with oak leaves. <laughs> Oh, you are from Piri. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. So, in 1993, it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects and the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. It won the Saturn Award for Best Fantasy Film and Danny Elfman won the Best uh, Music Score Award. He was also nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Original Score. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film holds a rating of 95% and is ranked number one on the top Christmas movies list. Now, after this, Tim Burton's film Edward would go on to be a bit of a flop at the box office. Great film. Yeah, but a flop at the box office. Yeah, massively. Burton was replaced as director for the third Batman film by Joel Shoemaker and worked on the film as a producer instead. Burton and Elfman decided to forgive and forget and recommence their filmmaking bromance with Mars Attacks. And after Burton's Alice in Wonderland made Disney over $1 billion. $1 billion for a very shit film. Very shit. In 2010. I don't know how that happened. I had to, like, read it twice. I was like, that film? Yeah, that's unwatchable. Yeah. Uh, but after the billion dollars, Disney loved Burton again. They even let him remake Frankenweenie, which is a film they originally fired him for. <laughs> I've seen it. It's depressing. It's very depressing. <laughs> so, so depressing. Oh, Imagine look. that being your like victory lap, though. Oh. Like when you, you come back into the office with your little box with your plastic part and your coffee cup strutting in to some Danny Elfman tune that you got listening to on your original 80s tape deck. It's like, <laughs> I'm here to make fucking Frankenweenie. Yeah, I am going to make all of you cry. <laughs> what are we making? Zombie dog. Yeah, oh my God. And then literally just shows up, destroys everybody's soul. <laughs> and then just pick up your pot plant and fuck off again. Oh my God. <laughs> 
But that is good. If you fired me for making a movie, I would come back and insist on making that movie. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Like, that is one of the best, like, oh, do you know what I mean? It's like when you when you get dumped by somebody mm. and then you see them and they're like fat, bald, unemployed and homeless with a meth addiction and yeah. you're like, <laughs> That is particularly good fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of that, but in a professional level. <laughs> Uh, now, in 1986, so three years later, Henry Selleck would release a live-action and stop-motion film adaption of James and the Giant Peach. Tim Burton also worked as a producer on this film. It was not released as Tim Burton's Giant Peach. <laughs> it, had, it was, however, nominated for an Academy Award for Best Musical Score. Well, you couldn't have Tim Burton's Giant Peach. It's a fun summer fruit. <laughs> <laughs> He'd have to have something moribund. Oh, Tim Burton's slightly overripe plum. <laughs> I was going to say slightly overripe avocado. <laughs> it's dark. The saddest fruit. Oh. Why is my green breakfast brown? Oh my god! No, surely he would do like he would have to do. Oh my god! Why is my berry as blue as me? <laughs> That's got Tim Burton written all you over it. You think it would be sweet, but it's flavourless. Ah, no, that was Tim Burton's <laughs> Alice in Wonderland. Uh. Oh, Lord. Uh, it was nominated for Academy Award Best Musical Score. In 29, 2009, sorry, Henry Selleck's stop-motion picture Caroline was released. It grossed. Over $124 million worldwide at the box office, making it the third highest grossing stop motion film of all time after Chicken Run and Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. And I think Caroline is, is, oh my God, is so much better than James and the Giant Peach because it does have a very dark aesthetic as well. and. You, you, there are parts of it where you'd be like, oh, oh, this looks like something that Disney would release as Tim Burton <laughs> presents oh, <laughs> Caroline. Coraline? Yes. Cor- I was going to say Caroline? I don't know. Oh, well, yeah, the, the, yeah, the doll that sews its eyes on it and there's yeah, an yeah. alternate dimension. Yeah. That's fucking creepy. Yeah. It's a good man, but f- I put that on for my five-year-old son and about 30 minutes in, I'm like, we're changing this. <laughs> But I think that's like, and it's also, you know, to the people who are like, oh, you know, all of the dark aesthetic was because of Burton in The Nightmare Before Christmas. No, I think we found out it really wasn't yeah. all Burton. It was like, bless him. He also loves a good dark aesthetic. Burton's going to lift his game, go sit in a cemetery and charge up by the moonlight. <laughs> Listen to the cure. Oh my god, you know how there were those people who said that, you know, you'd live to be a thousand years if you would expose your anus to the sun to get like you, you know you the call sun rays them people. on your anus. Do you think Tim Burton is somewhere in a graveyard now pointing his anus at a full moon? Is it the same thing? He's trying to get like the moon bank to like reinvigorate himself. Curse of the wear gooch. <laughs> I'm just saying for everything, there's always people there's who always are at the someone. opposite end of the scale. Yeah. So, oh my God, I, you know what? If you're out there right now and you have your keister pointed to a full moon, okay, 
reach out to us. Let us know about that. If you think it does have an effect on your life. I mean, it probably has an effect on your social life and possibly your criminal record. Can you imagine explaining that in court when the police find you just pants down? Imagine explaining it on TMZ. <laughs> So Tim, oh my God, TMZ catches Tim Burton. Oh, keister out in a graveyard. What are you By do- Vincent Price's <laughs> gravestone. <laughs> just presenting to the moon. <sighs> it's what he would have wanted. <laughs> it's the secret to my aesthetic. Charging my pineal gland to moonlight. <laughs> Sits up and drinks a claret. I will return to those who denied me at Disney and I will crush them like blueberries. (laughs) Overripe avocados under my boot. (laughs) Scoundrels. As he he slowly lies back like Dracula going into his coffin, (laughs) spreads his legs. (laughs) Now pass me my moon mirror (laughs) so I might intensify the gaze. You know the worst thing? All of this is done to a rising soundtrack by Danny Elfman, who's done him a little soundtrack on a cassette. Just for what he wants to present to the moon. This is fucking weird. This is fucking weird. Fucking weird. Fucking weird. Fucking weird. <laughs> There's a ghost tour I would go on. <laughs> oh my god! You know what the best thing is? You don't. You don't need a lamp. Just to be like, oh my god! Like we can't see where we're going. Tim, as he slowly descends his trousers. <laughs> <laughs> in his in his rim hole <laughs> leads you from the <laughs> leads you from the cemetery. It'd be such an ordeal because those goth pants have always got fifty buckles. Oh. <laughs> I just love to hear the local historian though leading you by candlelight through the cemetery. And over here we have the grave of Lindy McCain, who is said to have died very young. And uh, if you look over there, you'll see Academy Award nominated Tim Burton. <laughs> Sunning his pineal gland to the reflection of the moon. <laughs> Getting a good charge tonight to full moon. I just I don't know why I have this image of him just like spinning around like a lighthouse. Like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, locals get confused and think it's a UFO. <laughs> no, it's, oh, he'd love that. It's, a, it's one of two <sighs> things. It's either Uranus or it's Tim Burton's. Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh my with- God. No, I'm sorry. It is not Uranus. It is Tim Burton's Uranus. <laughs> Explain that one, Mufon. Oh my God. Tim Burton presents Uranus. <laughs> or just Tim Burton presents. <laughs> we get a merch idea every week. <laughs> Tim Burton, like a, like a Tesla, oh. <laughs> charging himself by oh. the vibes from the moon. Oh my god! The problem is, though, is that uh, is, is all of this now owned by Disney? <laughs> I don't think they'd want it. <laughs> I think it's just they, they. Oh, this would definitely be a Touchstone production. <laughs> we're, we're, <laughs> he's, oh my god! Uh, oh my god! Burton is the latest Disney princess. Oh no! Oh my god, can you imagine the match ideas of like you get like a little bed oh my god, a little nightlight for your kid's room. Oh. Which is just and the light and it's just Tim Burton with just his ass out and just the light coming out. See, we're imagining a very different pose here. I'm imagining him on his back. Oh legs over the like he's like he's getting an exam. Yeah. And you're like more like a coquettish 
Yes. A strumpet. Well, he's a gentleman. I think that's how he would do it. Yeah. I think I think there's a very more refined, dark shadow inspired. <laughs> See, I've got him legs over the head. Really? Yeah. No, he doesn't look for, like he's, he's bendable ex- enough for to do maximum it. exposure. Yes, but you're not a gentleman. No, like, I'm not. Tim Burton is a gentleman of a different age. Well, exactly. He <laughs> shows his displeasure by kicking walls and attacking <laughs> editing machines. <laughs> Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. Um, if you'd like to counter this, Tim Burton, um, please, you know, contact us and please, you can reply softly. We're going to get a letter that was definitely written with a feather. <laughs> I'll help you know. Oh my god, the worst bit is you don't want to see him dink it like dink it into his inkwell. <laughs> dip dip dip. Oh. His angriest of letters. <laughs> from the colon of Tim Burton. From, Dear sir. From the bowels of my existence. Yours faithfully. I don't know why I've given him an English accent. He's from Burbank. <laughs> Oh, but it kind of works, though. It does. It kind of works. <laughs> the Tim Burton's Graveyard Playset. <sighs> <laughs> With real kickable walls. <laughs> and moon charged dice. <laughs> oh, my God. This is so good. Oh, my God. I really, I just, I really want to bring the Tim Burton nightlight to life. <laughs> Problems getting your son to sleep. He could be our test case. Maybe this is what he needs <sighs> to finally get those good eight hours. He, he'd turn around, he'd see that, and just be like, "Nah, I'm going." As I'm he comes back. running into my bedroom to wake me and Lou up, Dad, I'm scared. Son, that is a five times Academy Award <laughs> nominated creative genius <laughs> who made Ed Wood and Mars Attacks. You know what the oh my god! You know what the best bit is? The nightlight has to will get Danny Elfman to score just a little bit of music. Music for the nightlight. He'll totally be on board. I'd be like, remember that time where he fired you and got an intern to do it? You maybe want to make some music for this product. The intern would definitely be included in the playset. The bad news intern. <laughs> yeah. So what am I to do in this internship? It's not an internship. You are a harbinger. <laughs> oh. Oh. You are a bearer of ill will. I'm just picturing like a like like an Oliver Twist urchin that they've just taken. He's gone back in time that he's just brought from like 18th century England, like London town. He's got buttons for eyes. It's just a pro. Oh, I, I'm sorry, Mr. Elfman, sir. Um, um, oh, it's very awkward. Um, but um, apparently one is out, and um, and Chris Sarandon is in. Don't beat me. Don't thrash me, sir. Don't thrash me like an editing machine. <laughs> <laughs> I just came to the pictures to spark joy. That's all. If anyone has access to a 3D printer, can you please make us the Tim Burton <laughs> graveyard playset? What is that? The per- perennium presenting playset. Charge his penny or gland and watch his creative genius grow. Oh my god. <laughs> Definitely not solar powered. <laughs> playset includes urchin. 
Danny Elfman, kickable walls, shakable editing machine, and slightly perturbed local ghost tour coordinator. (laughs) (laughs) With real shock face. (laughs) 277 different different facial expressions, ranging from disgust, horror, curiosity... Oh my god. Includes ghouls from Disney. Not ghosts, just the people who work at Disney. Oh, they will sue us. <laughs> don't, don't. What are they going to take my half used ventilator inhaler? They will. They will. <laughs> oh my god. I... Well, when they apologize for making The Last Jedi, I'll apologize for what I just said. No, you didn't. Rise, prophets, rise. Now, we're going to have the Star Wars people and Disney on us. Uh, the two angriest true. people you don't want to make fucking angry. Well, here's, here's one for you, Star Wars people. Your entire film franchise would have been shit without Kathleen Kennedy. So, there you go. Oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to... I feel like I can't argue that. Yeah. Because... If, yeah. if you've ever read the original screenplay by mm. George for mm. Star Wars, yeah. fuck, it was bad. <laughs> he, he literally fucking slaps Leia in like the first three pages. Star like Star Killer as he was called. Yeah, slaps his sister Princess Leia like you know their sister and brother. Yeah, and like the first like sh- like calm down, bitch. I actually prefer that to him snogging her. Oh come on, you're from fucking Broken Hill. <laughs> you would have seen that. Yeah, exactly. I've seen enough of it to just be like. <laughs> one of my favorite memories is I went to you know obviously you know they do every now and then whenever there's another anniversary they do like another screening. Yeah, and when you when. When you watch like the original Star Wars, when it gets to the bit where like Luke and Leia kiss, the entire crowd, completely <laughs> unprompted, is just like eight hundred people in the dark, just eight hundred people. Ew! <laughs> hey, it's war and it's lonely in space. Ah, uh, you know what? I just thank God it wasn't made like today by a different director before we found out in the next film because it would have been like hardcore, like yeah you know, cream pieing. And then it would have got to like the second like one and they would be like Oh, this is this is gonna be awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Because Star Wars was made by Pornhub. <laughs> I mean she was just getting her washing out of the dryer and somehow she got stuck in there with no <laughs> pants on. She was trying to get her pants back. We've we've all we've all done that. How did I get stuck under the coffee table again? <gasps> I gotta admit, I once like Okay, so I was like 18. I didn't own my own washing machine. No one can see the 400 expressions I've just given you. <laughs> Go on. It's 18. I didn't own my own washing machine. I went to the laundromat. Um, this is like straight after work. You know, I had my, like, my stupid, you know, um, outfit on. And I was putting all my stuff into the, you know, the washing machine. I was putting everything there. I'm like, oh, you know what? Actually, I've got my, I've got my good knickers on. I want these for the weekend. I'm like, so I just slipped them off, put because I had a skirt on, so I just I slipped them off, put them in the washing machine. I'm like, ah, I'm alone. No one will ever know. Yeah. You know, you know what? Why not? I can just free ball it for a while. Put them in the machine. You know, <laughs> then went and sat down, and then I realized there was another row of seats that I didn't realize was sitting there, and it was just, just like. <laughs> Like 20-year-old tradie. He was just like, <laughs> <laughs> Dinner and a show. <laughs> oh, but, you know, 
Anyway, say what you will about me. I keep my panties clean. Hey, you fucking probably saved the tradie from making a horrible mistake that night. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, so, yeah. So, where was I? Henry Selleck. That's right. So, he, he made the movie Doll Eyes. Um, it went on to receive nominations uh, for the Academy, from the Academy Awards, from the BAFTAs, um, and the Golden Globe. It was all nominated for the Best Animated Feature. And his next stop-motion picture, Wendell and Wild, with Keegan-Michael Kay. Right. And Jordan Peele. Yeah. So it's going to get scary. Yep. Uh, is scheduled for release in 2022. But COVID, you know. Yeah, COVID fucked a few things. Yeah. Including uh, the Australian Oscars. Yeah. Hey! <laughs> now, Disney has been begging Burton for decades to let them make a sequel to The Nightmare Before Christmas. And Burton has always strongly, thankfully, refused and says that it's one of those films that should just remain as a singular film. Yeah. Which I agree with. Yeah. Let's just leave it as one film and let us enjoy this holiday classic for the little snowflake it is. Yeah. Because let's face it, when you do fuck with a winning formula like Cars, mm. you make Cars 2, which was an abomination. Oh, my God. How does every – I swear to God, every time we talk about anything, yeah, you always find a way to mention the film Cars. Because it is a fucking masterpiece. It is a masterpiece <sighs> study in the human condition. And oh, they, my God. Yeah, you won't, you won't watch more than two episodes of Squid Game. But fucking a, Cars yeah. changed your life, apparently. As you try and, <gasps> ah, good one, Nancy Pelosi, ripping your fucking script. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to filibuster real change. Uh. I shun you like my anus shuns the sun. <laughs> Force hail, one anus, only exposed to moonlight. <laughs> oh, my, oh, my God. You call it moonlighting. Oh, my God. Yeah. And that nearly won an Oscar. <laughs> Tim Burton stands up. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Just gave a bit away, Pee Wee Herman in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. Oh, my God. Just on a future, I think one day we are going to do an episode on um, celebrities and the horrible and horrific things that they did to get them cancelled from society. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And Pee Wee Herman. Pee Wee Herman is in there. Yeah. Okay. Amy Hammer, we've done. Yeah, we've done it. We've done Amy Hammer. But I just, I just, I really just want to talk about the Pee Wee Herman story a lot because it makes me laugh. You know what? I'm just going to say it. It. And considering you know the stuff that we know about Army Hammer and Bill Cosby, what what Pee Wee Herman did to Little Pee Wee wasn't actually that bad no. in, in the in the scheme of things. You know, like impolite for the cleaner. But I don't want to give too much away. We'll discuss that more. No, when we he, do give, our- he gives a lot away. <laughs> <laughs> Which was the problem? Yes. And in line with my catchphrase, it is a future promise that we are going to look at the dick. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Just remember, real, real mothmen eat the carpet. 